The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And a big welcome for anybody who's new this morning, and um, morning in Minneapolis at least. And we've been looking at the uh, ten paramis, as I mentioned, the beautiful qualities of the heart, sometimes paramis translated as the ten perfections, in the sense that traditionally it's thought of as the qualities of the heart that the Buddha-to-be developped in his mind, in his heart, in his personality, so that upon his awakening it both supported the deep insight and then allowed the Buddha to share what he had come to understand with his own awakening process with others. And these qualities, you know, no one is going to argue developing generosity and moral sensitivity and this capacity. You know, renunciation is really, it's an insight and a sort of a development where I still have my habits and the impulses of my heart and mind, my conditioning, but I'm not governed because I have this newly developed talent of renunciation so I can feel the impulse to want to get even with you because you hurt my feelings, but I can feel that impulse to want to push back, hit back, but I can renounce that impulse. So that's, you know, the most basic way renunciation works is we're a human being, we have the push and pulls that come with having a personality, having been conditioned by culture, but renunciation can feel and see that, and it's the beginning of the capacity not to do just what our habits tell us to do. There's so much freedom just on that level of wisdom of renunciation. And then that leads to this next topic that we started last week, this fourth parami, beautiful quality of the heart of wisdom. And really understanding wisdom from this Buddhist perspective. One of the sort of defining qualities of the river that we're in the middle of. The, our life is this, these rivers, right? These movements, these ceaseless movements, is that all of the movements, subtle and gross, all of them are lawful. They're all conditional. And in Buddhism, we call this lawfulness karma, the law of karma. And it's an insight to realize because it undermines habits of helplessness. We feel helpless when we think something's happening, but it's not lawful. You know, either we personify it like somebody's out to get me, <laughs> like life is hard and somebody's out to get me and it ain't fair, we feel betrayed. Or we just think it's random or we make up something. But the more we pay attention, not that we can discern or read all of the forces that are behind the lawfulness of this moment. But we can sense and discern enough to become fully convinced that we live in a lawful universe. And it doesn't mean we're in charge of everything that's in motion. There's a lot, of course, that we're not in charge of. So stuff is happening not because of something I did, But, you know, there are other causes besides my, you know, the intentions in my mind. But still, it really helps that awakening into the lawfulness. So I talked a little bit about this last week, 
when I was introducing wisdom as one of the paramis, one of the ten beautiful qualities, because it's a it's a real powerful shift in our life when we realize that it matters. Like there's a lot of emotion, it's lawful. There's a lot of what's emotion that I'm not affecting, but it's still lawful. Like weather, I don't have a lot of say about weather. <laughs> you know, I don't affect the weather. Not much, at least. And uh, But I can understand that it's lawful. But there are some things that I more directly affect, like the quality of the intention in my heart, and whether or not I act on that intention, that can really affect my experience, my subjective experience as a human being. So if I have an impulse to say something to somebody, and I sense that that impulse is not very helpful, and I refrain from saying it, that has a profound effect on how my life unfolds. As opposed to I have that same impulse, I don't sense that it's unskillful, and I act on it, and I set in motion a lot of, you know, there's a lot of reverberations. That person doesn't like me, or this and that happens. And then all of that can set in motion other stuff, and then other stuff. And it can have huge long-term implications. All because of one's motivation or intention. This has become, like in later Buddhist traditions, I think in the Tibetan tradition, they have a teaching that everything rests on the tip of motivation or on the quality of one's intention. So even though I'm not in charge of the weather and even though there's so many historical you know, forces moving through our culture with roots far back in our human history, ignorances and um, yeah, biases and all kinds of tendencies in our wider natural world, in our cultural worlds. There's a lot of forces that I don't have much say about. But how I'm relating the quality of my mind, the quality of intention and motivation that are arising right now and what motivations, what intentions I act on and which motivations and intentions I feel I'm not repressing, but I don't act on, that actually has a lot to say about how my life unfolds. We tend to give much more weight on these external things that we don't have much say over, like the time and place where we were born and family we grew up in. And but it, it's in a way, uh, in a way it reinforces this wrong idea of helplessness because we sort of give what power we have over to these things we have no control over. And in a way, we, you know, unconsciously, I think, it gives us an out. I don't actually have to act in my life as if it matters because I've convinced myself it doesn't matter because there are all these bigger forces acting on my life. And because of all those external forces acting on my life that I don't control, it makes sense for me to give up. Or it makes sense for me to just get as comfortable 
as I can and write it out, my life out, you know, until it ends, because there's really nothing to do. And in a way, I think it's appropriate, and this relates to this parami of wisdom, to, to, to sort of, just to kind of make it simplistic, you know, one half, when there's not a lot of wisdom in our heart and mind, really not thinking there's much to do with our human life, except to write it out, try not to fall into too many holes, and um, but basically seek out an easy ride until it's over. As opposed to what I might, you know, in the way that I define someone with a spiritual orientation interested in Dharma, the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism, he taught Dharma, which means the way it is, right? He came up with a, a set of practices that allows us to align our life with the way it is. You know, so mindfulness, being wisely aware of the way it is, is a way of coming into alignment. Instead of being in alignment with our deluded ideas that come from culture, how we've been conditioned, in our instincts as mammals, you know, we can cultivate the stability of present moment awareness, this continuity of present moment awareness, this wise, mindful awareness. And it forces our understanding to come into alignment with the way it is. It will replace our cultural conditioning slowly over time. As we collect data, like the more mindful we are, with the way it is, the more our habits of understanding, our habits of viewing things, get challenged by the new data of being in alignment with the way it is, seeing things as they are, just in ordinary ways. So, you know, wisdom is really about realizing, oh, you know what, there's actually something to do with my life. I can undertake a systematic training. I know we don't like that word because life already feels like a lot of work. And then somebody on Sunday morning says, yeah, and you know what? You should get involved in training your heart. And it, gosh, it's only going to take, I don't know, two, three hundred, four hundred lifetimes. <laughs> you should go for it. And then it starts to make sense. Oh, no, I think I'll just ride it out and try to be as comfortable as I can and hope for the best. Which is why the Buddha taught, you know, he would use very provocative teachings about how long human beings, you know, because of there was this idea even before the time of the Buddha about rebirth. And uh, he would say things, you know, in the countless lifetimes, doing the same thing, getting the same result that we've lived, we have cried more tears than the four oceans. That's a lot of tears, right? Just doing the same thing, getting the same results. Basically, identifying with desire, identifying with hate and with greed, identifying with our patterns of distraction and denial and delusion, and getting the natural result, which is being tight, being afraid, feeling empty in that, not not in the Buddhist sense of the word, but hollow or something needs to fill this void. So 
It's sort of the background of all of our greed for whatever, for lunch, for a relationship, for whatever it might be that we long for. But basically some uneasy sense that this isn't it, this isn't enough, contentment doesn't make sense, ease doesn't make sense, because this moment is not okay. That's really the root ignorance, is that arrogant conclusion that this isn't okay. Now I know that, you know, even in my own privileged life, <laughs> it seems very clear that this moment isn't okay. And, uh, and I know that people have circumstances that are truly not okay in terms of physical, emotional, social um, suffering being oppressed, being taken advantage of, being abused, experiencing tremendous physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, spiritual pain. There is a lot of suffering. But there's a, what comes with that suffering is a, a superficial sense that I know enough about the suffering that my reaction to it is justified, like to run or to get tight. So we lack curiosity about human suffering. And then that's the doing the same thing, getting the same result. Because we haven't stabilized our life enough so that we have the stability to be interested in suffering, our own and the world's suffering. And one of the things that happens in life as we practice more is it doesn't really make sense just to talk about or think about our own suffering because as we become more sensitive, it we feel the injustices, we feel the cumulative and the wider suffering, not even just of other humans, but of the planet and the species on the planet, other creatures that we share the planet with. We'll feel that. It's like once we know about industrial agriculture and what happens to the animals, or once we, you know, take the time to do a deep study about the roots of racism or the roots of sexism or the roots of all the ways economic injustice, all the ways that power takes advantage of those with less power, it just naturally and appropriately breaks our heart open doesn't mean we suddenly have answers, but it means that we have a more honest relationship and we're more humble about just doing what we've always done and getting the same results. And in that humility comes real curiosity, which is one of the essential qualities of wisdom, that humility and curiosity. And it's kind of the opposite of what we think, you know, when we use that word in English, wisdom, and not always but often it, it's kind of equated with somebody who has a lot of knowledge. And, you know, there's some power and often arrogance when, there's, when we're a master of something. You know, because once we're a real master at something, we recognize how little other people know. <laughs> you know, oh, I could do that. I know that. But this... Uh, this experience we're actually having as a human being. It's like once we realize that everything matters 
and that how I'm relating, how I'm participating, how I'm relating in particular to my habits of mind and to my present moment experience, it really matters. And how easy it is for me in any moment just to be operating on autopilot uh, where the habits dominate and basically govern how I'm responding, what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing. And then I get the natural results of those habits. Some habits, of course, are more wholesome than others. But we are creating, we're planting seeds all the time. We have a lot of humility because it just makes so much sense to be more attentive, more sensitive. And any kind of arrogant certainty just gets in the way of being mindfully aware. We have to choose at some point as we go along this path, you know, of really seeing the value in being mindful, being mindfully aware of the present moment, we start to realize there's a profound choice. I can either be the one who knows, thinks he knows, thinks he knows what's up and what's down, or I can be mindful. But I can't actually be both at the same time. Because mindfulness, being aware, mindfully aware in this continuous way, means that any kind of certainty or fixed idea is falling into the background. It can't be the dominant force in the mind, that fixed idea. It's like, try it next time you're going to hang out with your partner or your friend, and you lead with a fixed idea, you sort of miss the, not sort of, you do, you miss the person. Because they're a living, changing, literally wild thing. <laughs> our friends, our partners, our kids, or whatever, our pets, our community, at work, our neighborhood, whatever. It's, it's wild, life, nature, experience, in the sense that it can't be really defined by our idea of our partner, of our community, of this situation. So that's a nice way for us, like homework, and this could work too for a small group discussion. And remember, um, we always have small groups, uh, Nancy and Shannon help organize them at the end of this program for the last 15 minutes. People are strongly encouraged to stay. I know it won't make sense for everyone. It's totally fine not to be part of the small groups. And a lot of you listen on live stream and you're not even going to be able to be part of these small groups. But you can find your own person, own friend, whatever, to have this conversation with. And so one of the ways to have this conversation is just where in your life, in your meditation life, and your just your daily life out in the world, where do you find yourself operating from a fixed idea place where you're kind of entering the meditation or entering that meeting or entering that interaction with another person with a pretty solid idea of who you are, who they are, what's happening, and where in your life do you operate with more humility and sensitivity and curiosity and openness, where things are, you're allowing things to be naturally undefined and unfixed, and just ask the question, how's, how does that work for you? Those places that are more fixed and those places that are unfixed, and what would it look like to bring those that those wiser way of relating of being unfixed 
into the places where you tend to be more fixed and held and defined. So that, is that enough for the, the small group conversation? And again, there's so much power in having these real, useful conversations with our dear friends, you know, especially people who have some kind of spiritual reflective practice. Even if they're not so a Buddhist or doing Buddhist meditation, there are people who are naturally reflective. They're using their capacity to be mindfully aware, and they're using that stability of present moment awareness to study the mind. That's the essence of what the Buddha taught. Stabilize your present moment awareness and use it to study the heart and mind, and in particular, use it to study how it is that suffering arises and how it is that suffering ceases. Anybody asks you, what was this guy Buddha teaching? Say, he taught the importance of stabilizing present moment awareness so that it feels good. There's a kind of pleasure in, and it's a funny word to use, but solidity about being present. Because life is in motion, but that ability to be mindfully aware creates a kind of ground in a groundless world. I know it sounds weird to say it that way, but it's really our visceral sense when we're, we have some momentum of that mindful awareness, we feel held in a funny way by that momentum of mindful awareness. It feels like protection and safety, even though our perception of our life is much more wild. We're so sensitive and we're sensing how everything is in motion and yet we feel safer. And so with that stability of mindful awareness, we get interested in the heart and mind and in particular we get interested in how it is that suffering arises and how it is that suffering ceases. Yeah, and this is really the essence of wisdom in Buddhist practice. And so the question for you to reflect on and share in the small groups and share with your Dharma friends or other friends who might be interested in this kind of conversation is, you know, where in life do I live in a more fixed way where I'm not interested in bringing that curiosity and that openness and undefendedness where I'm, I feel like I have to be certain and tight as opposed to humble and knowing that I don't know. Because another way that wisdom is talked about, and I think I mentioned this briefly last week, is the absence of fixed views. And so ignorance is when we're operating with fixed views, self-centered, arrogant, fixed views. And remember, our fixed view could be that I'm no good, right? That's a common fixed view for people to be living their life with, some sort of version of self-hatred. So fixed views, uh, self-centered views, it isn't always like, I'm better than you. It could be just as much, I'm not as good as you. And even I'm the same as you is a fixed view, right? We don't need any it seems like the, those fixed ideas give us solidity or ground. 
but all they really do is give us the stressful situation of having to defend my opinion and my fixed idea, <laughs> right? It's always a burden to be living with a fixed view. And it doesn't mean we can't have a discussion about politics and have an opinion. It just means that the opinion that we put out there, we're holding lightly. Well, this is how I'm seeing things right now. But we're because we're not personally identified with that view that we just shared with the group, we're totally open to new information coming in. And in two minutes, we might have a different view about it. You know, now that hearing you, now it seems like this is how I see it right now. And it may be different down the road, I don't know. But right now, this is how I see it. And you know, a lot of the times we feel at a disadvantage in the wider world when uh, people operate with fixed views. It's sort of like, God, I've, I need a fixed view, you know, because they're going to win because they have this conviction that they're right and I'm this wishy-washy Buddhist who, you know, operates in the world. Well, let's see, you know, or yeah, tell me what you have to say. I'll see how that might inform my own thinking on this right now. You know, that kind of lack of fixed view, but you'll see, I think, as I'm still learning, you know, in the same way, that there's a real power in, uh, it's like never feeling like we're there with certainty. And this is part of, you know, we talk about anicca, which is translated as impermanence or the ephemeral nature of everything. Like I said in the guided meditation, really discerning how everything is always in motion. So certainty isn't really in the mix for us humans. And whenever we try to bring in certainty, we always suffer. And that's some of the, you know, you could bring this up in a small group, just give examples in your own life, like in an intimate relationship or in your relationship with one of your kids or with your parent. Whenever you tried to fix it, you and probably others suffered. And whenever we, in our relationships with life and each other, operated, lived with a more open, undefined way, things seem to work better. Before we end, I wanted to read a few things, but I'll just mention that next week we'll have one more week talking about wisdom and I'll do that in terms of the Four Noble Truths. This is another way in Buddhist practice that we understand what the Buddha means by panya or wisdom. Right? It's really understanding specifically the lawfulness of how suffering arises and how it ceases. So some of you who know a little bit about Buddhism know that the Four Noble Truths are really a central teaching. But remember that it's not like, uh, when we say noble truth, it's, it's not a metaphysical thing. It's really a way of orienting our mind. Like I mentioned, can we move through life interested in how it is that suffering arises, how it is that suffering ceases? And take responsibility. Like this is a relevant task for me as a human being to start to get interested, like how it is that my heart gets tight how it is that it releases. Is it always just external forces that are being dumped on me that are causing my suffering and the freedom from suffering? Or is it how my mind itself is participating in the moment? 
with what kind of understanding, with what kind of way of relating. So I'll just end before we break into small groups with this teaching from the Buddha. This is from the Middle Link Discourses, number 26. Um, usually the title is translated, The Noble Search. And the Buddha is talking in this discourse, he's really talking about how we relate to suffering. Practitioner, there are these two searches. There's a way of searching that is liberating, and there's a way of searching that is leads to more suffering. And this is in terms of our actual, ordinary experience of suffering. And what is the unhelpful search? There is the case where a person being subject themselves to birth seeks happiness in what is likewise subject to birth, being subject oneself to aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement. One seeks happiness in what is also impermanent, like illness, death, sorrow, and defilement. And then he goes on to talk about all those things that we look to to give us safety, like our partners. If only I have a solid partner who loves me and I can love, then I'll be somehow immune from the truth of uncertainty, the truth that everything changes. Or if only I have enough money, or if only I live in the right place where people treat me a certain way, or if only... So that's the... Uh, you know, and the, and the Buddha kind of summarizes that, like, why would we, when our own experience, our own subjective experience is sort of unfixed, why would we seek safety in what is also unfixed? It doesn't make sense. What is also untrustworthy. And so he says, but there's a noble search, right? A search that is actually helpful. There is a case where a person being subject to change seeks something that doesn't change. The unborn, the unexcelled rest from the yoke of suffering, unbinding, right? Non-attachment, we could say in more plain English. Oneself being subject to aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement, doesn't seek safety in what also is subject to change, but seeks it in something that is deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, unexcelled, unbinding. This is the noble search. I too, practitioners, before my awakening, when I was an unawakened bodhisattva, bodhisattva, these are words, bodhisattva, bodhisattva, is technically it means somebody on their way to being a Buddha, not yet a Buddha. So when the Buddha was still practicing to wake up, being myself subject to birth, I sought what was likewise subject to birth, being myself subject to aging, illness, death, sorrow. I sought happiness in what was likewise subject to illness, death, sorrow. The thought occurred to me, why do I, you know, subject to impermanence, seek safety in what is also impermanent? Why not seek something, uh, what does he say here? What if I, being subject to birth, seeing the drawbacks in birth, were to seek the unborn, unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding Nibbana? Okay. 
So that's our invitation. The Buddha is modeling. And so what is, you know, what does wisdom seek? It seeks something that's here and now, a way of understanding here and now that is liberating. Because the problem is when we're, we open to the wildness, the changingness of our experience of heart, of body, of mind, we seek solidity in what can't provide solidity. And that is endlessly frustrating. So we seek harder to find safety in what can't provide safety. And that's endlessly frustrating. So we seek harder to find safety in what can't provide safety. And so we're endlessly frustrated. And that's samsara. That's our human life for the most part. And then wisdom is realizing this is not the way. Seeking safety. It doesn't mean I don't feed my body. doesn't mean I don't repair my house or take care of my relationships or be a good citizen. We still need to take care of this ordinary level of our life, but we don't expect it to provide this existential safety. We have to look somewhere else for that. Even as we take care of this ordinary business of feeding the body, taking care of our relationships, and on and on. And we find it in this activity. We don't have to go to a cave, although it does help if our life is somewhat simple, because when it's not, we get swept away by the details. So we need a little space, and I understand that is a privilege, because there are people who have very, I feel like I don't have enough space, you know, and here I am, a Buddhist Dharma teacher, and, you know, if I don't have, you know, as much time and space to do my practice and to live a mindful life, you know, that's, I guess it's on me. <laughs> like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why don't I change? And that's really the question for all of us. How, in the responsibilities that we already have in our life, how can we create some space, even as we take care of those responsibilities, to look for this other way, this unbinding of how to be in the middle of the river. And it really has to do with desire. And it's not about eliminating desire, it's about understanding that desire is nature and not self. So I'll pick this up next week when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, and this could come up in the small groups too. This profound shift in how we relate to desire. Desire is like life energy. It's not going away. It doesn't need to go away. We wouldn't have a human life if we didn't have desire. Desire is sort of at the heart of our human life, but we misunderstand it. We're basically personalizing what is in fact a natural movement. So you can just start, get familiar with desire what you might consider unwholesome desire and what you might consider wholesome desire, get familiar with all of the ways desire moves and have a friendly, curious relationship with desire and see it like a movement, like you were learning to feel the body as a movement and emotionality as a movement. Well, desire is also just a movement. And our job is not to be confused by this movement of desire. Oh, yeah. This is, this, this is the movement of desire. If you're attracted to somebody you shouldn't be attracted to because you're, 
You're not going to have a sexual relationship with that person. You don't need to be afraid of that desire. You just need to understand what that desire is. Of course, when I see someone like this, when I interact with a person like this, there is this desire. Okay, I can be sensitive to that desire without believing that I can't be happy unless I act on that desire. That's extra. I can have a healthy relationship with desire and not feel like I have to do anything about it. So that's enough for today. Uh, just a little bit about the etiquette for our small groups. This is true whether you do the small group on your own with a dear friend or you're going to stay uh, for the Zoom groups or you're here uh, in our building. And uh, I think today Ruth will be dividing people up into groups or maybe there's just enough for one group. But the first thing you do is introduce yourself. It's nice to share your pronouns so people don't accidentally misgender anybody. Somebody agrees to go first. And we're really creating a sacred space. And one of the ways we do that is we give everybody two to three minutes. It's their time. Nobody interrupts. Even if they're silent, just be in your body as you hold that silent space. Because the person whose turn it is to speak, they might pause. They might pause for 20, 30, 50 seconds. That's totally fine. And then they might have more to say. Everybody gets two or three minutes. Once everybody has had a chance to share, then open discussion time. We hold in confidence what comes up in these small groups. And just it's a wonderful experience of impermanence where a little community is born, can be so powerful and sweet, and then really be aware together of the dissolution when you say goodbye at the end. And just feel the poignancy of like, oh, that was nice, and now it's ending. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.